So y'all had me muted, I hope, during the whole worship service because that was not good. Oh, man. Hey, it's one of those mornings. Uh, for those who sit in the first row, we'll call that the splash section. I think my first Sunday here, I sat on a water bottle and like blew it up right before I walked up. This morning, I got in the truck, same thing. It's just it's one of those days. So, But like I said, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, and we'll be finishing that chapter. And um, just want to thank you for coming prepared to, to worship the Lord this morning. I love, I love worshiping with you and hearing, hearing the voices of the saints rise up together and declare the glory of our King. So let's pray, and we'll jump into it. God, you're wonderful. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to yourself and and sending your son. God, I pray this morning that you would illuminate our eyes to the truth that's in this that's in that's in your Bible. That you would speak to our hearts because we are incapable without you speaking to us. God, we pray that your spirit would just fall out on us. That you would pour your spirit on us. And that, God, we would get to participate in this revival that we see. A revival of repentance and submission. God, let us be your people. Let us be a people that say yes. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, Paul, he's rounding out his argument in Galatians 3, and we're going to start in verse 19. uh, And we're going to go all the way through 29. He's rounding out his argument showing that the law put in its proper place as a believer is a good thing. Because at a a surface level reading Galatians, kind of sounds like the law's the bad guy, right? He talks about it being a curse. He talks about it being a burden. He talks about us being in prison to it. The, the law seems like it's a bad thing. It seems like it's the bad guy, but that couldn't be further from the truth. The law is good when rightfully applied. And when we trust in the law for something that it can't give, like righteousness or salvation or, or something like that, it's not the law that becomes the bad guy. It's us. We're the bad guys because we're distorting the law and ultimately bringing curses of the law on ourselves and on the people who we get to follow us. So the law's not a bad thing. Uh, <clears throat> the bad guys in this book, it's not the law of God, rather, it's the Judaizers. Remember, the circumcision party, that party who's made this Jesus plus theology, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus following the laws, Jesus plus tradition, Jesus plus. The, these are the guys who, who are, are the bad guys in this story. The, the, the law, though, is not a, it's not a bad thing. Think about the law like electricity. We got some electricians in here. I know Dan's an electrician. So the, the law is a good thing, right? Or the electricity is a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing. Electricity, you go up to one of these hospitals, it's keeping people alive. It's, you know, you, you go down a dark stairwell and you can turn on lights and it illuminates. It, it, it brings safety. The, the laws or, or the, the law of the electricity, it's a good thing. Dan, if I go and lick a light socket, how's that going to end for me? Not well. Electricity is good when rightfully applied, but dangerous 
when wrongly applied. The same is with the law. The, the law wrongly applied brings injury and death, but the law rightfully applied points us to Christ who gives life. And if you're a note taker this morning, that's, that's our what is true statement. The law wrongly applied brings injury and death, but the law rightfully applied points us to Christ who gives us life. So what do we do with this? We are to live as heirs of grace, extending love and grace um, that's been given to us. So we're going to find in our text this morning that we are an heir of Christ. We are an heir of God. We've been adopted. That's what picks up in chapter 4. And we are to be ministers of this grace. So let's, let's read our text together, starting in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by intermediary by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisons everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now, now that faith has come, we no longer are under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're also sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we're going to take this in a, in a couple pieces. The first piece that we're going to take is the law and sin, verses uh, 19 through 20. And I know I already answered this question, but by this time in, in, the, in the text, we should be asking, why did God even give the law? Because it kind of sounds like a bad thing by this point, right? And Paul, he's answering this question for us. First, the law is only a bad thing if it's applied to bring righteousness. And, but Paul tells us that the law was added for transgressions until the offspring should come. And we remember last week in our text that the offspring was Jesus. So the law was given until Christ would come. And, and the law is a grace to let us know that we've sinned against the holy God. The law, what it does is it points us to Jesus, that promised offspring from Abraham that we learned about last week. So what Paul's doing in this section, he, he desires to preserve the authority of Scripture and the unity of God's purpose, and that's why he's about to spend all this time showing the positive, the positive roles of the law in the story of redemption even though it has its positive 
aspects, it's very limited. The law is limited. And the law is good as long as we see the extent and the limits of the law. So the role of the law is to be a moral, like a moral guardian of a minor. In the same sense, uh, the law raised moral awareness and it also cor corrected like moral lapses. For instance, put yourself back in high school. Now imagine you got invited to a party and I'm not talking about a birthday party, like one of those parties. And um, your parents say you can go as long as you take a chaperone, and that chaperone's either the principal or the preacher. So you pull up, you get out of the car, and you can hear, you can hear the music, you can hear the people inside. Like, you can tell it's a good party. I mean, we're at church, so we're not going to call it a good party. Like, but you, I mean, you can tell it's a good party. <laughs> so you and, and the preacher walk inside. What's that do to the mood of the room? <laughs> like people are running around, they're hiding stuff, they're trying to act like they got it together. That's, that's what the law does. The law brings awareness. The, the law shows, it, it restrains actions people may have otherwise done. Also, uh, a, another experience I always have, I'm one of those guys, I can make friends wherever I'm at, the line in the DMV or at the pump of the gas station, just, I can start a conversation with anybody. And, you know, I meet these guys and they look at me and they assume things and they start using their normal vernacular, their cussing, telling, telling, you know, dirty jokes, things like that. And it always comes around like, so what do you do? <laughs> I'm a preacher. And you can just see them die inside. <laughs> and then it, it never fails. Their next thing they say is, well, I go to church. <laughs> okay. Um, but they're so used to talking away that they don't even notice it. And when they meet a preacher, all of a sudden, they're conscious of their actions. The first illustration showed that the law brings restraint, like somebody of authority going into a party. The second illustration shows the law, the law brings awareness to our actions. So the law is to be like a guardian for us. It's a, it's a good thing. God, God gives us the law, and it's a grace because it brings restraint to our actions, as well as bringing awareness to what sin is and also what pleases God. The, the, law, the laws are graces from God. Let's, let's not misinterpret that. The law are God's graces. Because I feel like I've spent so much time over the last like months talking about the law in, in, in a very negative way. But when we create a Jesus plus gospel to... to, to that's how real redemption comes, that's when the law becomes a bad thing because we're trusting in the law for something it can't do. The law foreshadows one coming who can fulfill it. But the law, we can't fulfill the law. So in that, it only brings curses. So let's, let's look at, back at uh, verse 19. And this is, if this didn't create a question in your mind, I'm sorry, but we're following a rabbit trail that 
created a huge question in my mind. So, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. intermediary. Not, now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So it tells us in verse 20, God is the, God is the intermediary who put the, the law and in, in all that in place. So God is the source of the law. God is the source of all the promises. But with him being a source, there was this conduit that, that brought the law. And it tells us that this conduit is angels. So God is the source of the law, and we are given the law by angels. Angels, uh, this word normally indicates an angelic messenger. Um, but whenever you see that happen, all except for this case and the, the seven churches of Asia Minor that you find in Revelation, um, they're always connected to a preposition, like an angel from God or, or something like that, like something that lets you know that they're coming from God himself. But... I don't see a preposition like that here. And also, I don't remember anywhere where an angel from God gives the law. Do you? God gives the law. And Moses takes the law to the people. The, the, the word angel in Greek has a very simple definition. It just means messenger. It's a generic word. And when it's translated without those prepositions, it's always translated messenger. In this case and in those cases in Revelation, for some reason, that messenger there is translated as angel for us. But, and I'll, I'll let you know that that's the, that's the most common translation. I'm in the minority because I don't see that as angel. I translate it as just like a messenger. Like I believe it's the, the prophets who brought us the law because you see, God give the law to Moses. You see Moses take the law down the mountain and give it to the people. You see God give different things to people to tell uh, to his prophets to say things, and it comes directly from God through people. Now, the rabbinical idea, which he's talking to people who would have had this understanding, more than likely, as well as the majority view, looks at Deuteronomy 33.2. And I'm just trying to give you a couple a couple of views. Mine is definitely the minority, but Deuteronomy 33, uh, 2, that is the majority view. And there on the mountain, on Sinai, God gives, God is there giving the law. And it talks about thousands of angelic uh, beings being there while the law is given. So that's, that's the, the most common view, but that's not the view I hold. I hold the minority one. I take the simplest translation because what I feel like the translators are doing is trying to distance God from the law. And I don't feel that need to distance God from the law because it's a grace given by him. But, you know, it's, it really doesn't change the interpretation in any way of this text. But I went down that rabbit trail thoroughly this week, and you might have had that question, so I wanted to take you with me. So let's, let's look at verse 21. So now we're switching and we're, we're, we're transitioning and we're going to look at life and the law. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Like that's an emphatic no. He's mad. No. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. 
but Scripture imprisons everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So here's, if we missed this this morning, I failed. So let's, let's, let's answer this question. Does the law oppose the promises of God? No, no. Let's try that again because that, that's, that's the major thing, one of the major things we need to walk away with from this text this morning. Does the law oppose the promises of God? I'll take that as a pass for me today. No, <laughs> because God, verse 20 tells us, God is the source of the law and the promises. So he's not contradicting himself. The law was given as a gift and we should carry it out living by faith in the Son of God. So Paul's problem is not with the law itself, but with the view of the law that loses touch with the foundation of righteousness. Around the, uh, righteousness, we've, we've established this over the last two months, comes from by faith alone. In the Old Testament, Abraham was saved by faith. In the New Testament, we are saved by faith. It's all by faith. And when you start putting your trust in the law, you've removed the foundation. So the law, verse 22, could not give life. The law, um, it couldn't give life. It tells us that Christ is the life giver. The law couldn't give righteousness. Righteousness only comes by faith. And the law was never intended to do any of those things. So look at verses 22, or 23 through 26. And we're going to see that God's intent, and that is that the law would be our guardian until a better guardian comes. And that better guardian is Jesus. Paul, again, I just want to be very clear. He wasn't against the law. Jesus wasn't against the law. The law is a gift from God for human flourishing. The, I mean, think about this. The law talks about money management. The law talks about how to keep your schedule. The law talks about rest. It's, it's a gift for human flourishing. And every civilization in the world that has held on to these Judeo-Christian values, whether or not they're believers or not, but that they've, these general teachings of the law, those countries have flourished. The law and the principles are given for human flourishing and for the betterment of people, just kind of in general, not to mention the worshiping of God. So Jesus, he came to fulfill the law. Jesus did not come to do away with the law. Let's see what Jesus says, and you'll see it on the screen. Uh, Matthew uh, 5, 17. Man, I'm getting tongue-tied like crazy. Matthew 5, 17. He says this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. So did Jesus come to abolish the law or the prophets? No. Jesus is for the law. He's for the prophets. Matter of fact, that's his Bible, and he's the author of it, so he's for it. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So, do you think that Jesus ha is of the opinion that now you don't have to follow the law once you come to him? Not based on that. Not based on scripture. 
In verse 19, he says that if you don't keep the least of the teachings of these, of these moral commands, that you're going to be least in the kingdom. Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And a lot of us, we want to act like the moral law of God. We're saved by faith. Now we can do whatever we want to do. No, there's grace for it. We've been freed from it, but he still wants us to live by his law. I think um, one of the wrong ways we think about this is because we have, we've got kind of a weird way of thinking about fulfillment. So, tis the season for, uh, what, do, what do you call those things uh, where, they, where they come and sell you the cookies for the school? Girl Scouts, that's a good one. Fundraiser season is upon us. And, you know, we've all got the catalog. And, you know, you go in and you want your Thin Mints or whatever it is. And they take and they, they fill out that carbon copy and they give you your piece of paper. And whenever they bring you the cookies back, what is your order now? Fulfilled. And what do you do with that contract? Trash it. That's not what we're talking about. And I think that's what we, when we think that Jesus, he came and he fulfilled the law and he just, now we can crumble it up and, and do away with it. No, there's just grace for our failure in the law. Uh, I think a better way to think about him, him fulfilling the law would, would look more like, so now my daughter's in like school, Jordan's doing school stuff with her and she's learning handwriting and uh, she's got those, those draw by number things. And it's, you know, the, the letters, they have the broken dots in them, and she, she fills those in to make a letter. That was an S, if you're following. <laughs> or, uh, you know, you, the, the little snowman one at Christmas, you, you follow the, the dots. And when you're done, the picture's fulfilled. We have a full seeing of what was intended. Christ came to give us a full picture of what the perfect man would be. Christ gave us the full picture of what the will of God is. Christ gave us a full picture of what was meant in the sacrificial systems and how he was going to ultimately fulfill all these things. Hebrews talks about the Old Testament like a shadow pointing to Christ. And Christ has came and fulfilled them. But in no way has he done away with our obligation to follow the law. We do it out of love, not out of fear. So, look, look with me now at, <clears throat> excuse me, at verse 23. So, Jesus, he connected the dots of the law. Verse, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. Before, before faith came in, it tells us that we were held captive to the law. That's why we call this, um, this series Captivated by Christ. You, you have the choice to be captivated by law and works, or you have the choice to be captivated by the love of Christ. But how are we captivated by the law? 
I, I see a situation that looks like slave labor. If, the, the, if a person were looking at the law as their master instead of a guardian, the law would be a cruel master, right? Its constant demand of the law is do, har- do more, work harder, try harder. Because the law tells us we're never going to be enough. But if you look at the law as a guardian, the, it's very kind. Now, it's, it's asking you and telling you to do things that are for your benefit. Like, have you, how many of you, by raise of hand, would love for somebody to tell you to lay down for a nap today? Now, our children, my child, would have a different opinion, right? As her guardian, I do that out of love because I want better for her. God, even in his law, has rhythms of rest for us. Only when we see it as a guardian instead of a master. So these Jews, they've distorted God's law so much. One way is, like, when I think about the rest that God commands... I just see that as a, just a, a kindness. But we've all heard sermons talking about how the Jews had distorted the law around the Sabbath idea that you could only take so many steps. You could, and it was so cumbersome. And it was basically, basically the, the external laws that they created around the law, they couldn't keep it. But they were trying really, really hard to keep it because they didn't want to be socially ostracized. And it was exhausting and they were exhausted. And that's, that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, y'all who are le- heavy laden by the law. Like trying to keep up with all that stuff's exhausting. I, I'll give you a for instance, because nobody wants this, this being judged. So our, when, when y'all brought me in view of a call back in, um, back in the fall, it was, it was the night that y'all did the, your, your, your harvest festival. Y'all remember that? And... Certain churches have different things that they do. And Jordan and I were sitting there like, well, do we pack costumes? Or do we not pack costumes? Like, if, we, if they're all in costumes and we're not in a costume, they're going to think we're real judgy. But if we show up in costumes and ain't nobody in a costume, what are they going to think about us? It's going to be like a Salem witch trial thing on my first day. Like, we, you don't know. And we, nobody wants to be judged. Nobody wants to feel that. And it's like living that all the time. It's just heavy, right? So I ended up calling Brandon like, hey, I just worked into the conversation like, so do y'all dress up for this thing? He's like, no. I was like, sweet. <laughs> but once I, once I knew the standard, I was liberated. I, I was able to, to take the pressure off myself. But the pressure of a culture is real. And I don't care if it's a 21st century fall festival or a Sabbath in the first century, we all want to be accepted, don't we? The rules that they were making on top of the law, they were hard, they were burdensome, they were imprisoning to the very people they were supposed to liberate. So how could the law be a liberation? Let's think about this. Let's, let's put our feet in the, the sandals of those Jews coming out of Egypt. So they've just seen all the plagues. The angel of the Lord just killed all the firstborn. You're, you're walking in a line with, depending on how you count, thousands or millions of people. 
Egypt, the greatest war machine in world history, is at your back coming after you. God separates them with a pillar of fire where they can't get to you. He opens up the Red Sea. Y'all walk through it on dry ground. You're standing there. He, he, he takes you to the foot of Mount Sinai. You're out in the wilderness. You don't know anything about this God except for this God's about that business. He's real. Could you imagine the fear? You don't know what makes this God happy or mad. You don't know what this God expects from you. You don't know you, you have no idea, but you know that this God is terrifying and has real power in this real world. And then God meets with your leader and gives you a how-to manual. That's liberating because there's no guesswork involved. The law was meant to be a kindness to Israel but not the way that they were to find righteousness. Righteousness was always meant to be found by faith. It, think about taking the guesswork out. Y'all, I, some, somebody in here is real serious about bowling, and some, most of us bowl with the bumpers, right? Now, you can use the bumpers and totally miss, but if you use the, the bumpers as a guardrail, you're probably going to make it down to the end. The, the, the law is, is like guide rails to keep us safe. The law is not the vehicle that takes us to where we want to be. The vehicle that takes us to the kingdom of heaven is faith in Christ alone. The law is just guide rails to, to, to help us live a flourishing life while we're here and help the flourishing of other people who are around us. So let's, let's look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So we now have Christ, and we don't need the law as this guardian, because Christ, through the Spirit, Spirit is a better guardian. We, I talk about Ezekiel a lot. That's one of my favorite books, sorry. But Ezekiel, when it talks about him giving us a spirit, why is the purpose that he gives us a spirit? Ezekiel 36, 26, is so that we could keep his statues and follow his laws. That's why. He gives us a new heart. He gives us the ability to, he, he says, I'm gonna put a spirit in you that can empower you to do this thing. We've got a better guardian in Christ and in the Spirit than the law because the law is lifeless. We have God dwelling inside of us, giving us life. Paul uses the illustration of sons of God and the guardian of the law to paint an illustration that these Galatian people would have understood. Remember, it's made, the church is made up of probably predominantly Gentiles and then some Jews, but the Jews were being noisy. And in a Roman society, when, when a youth became old enough to be considered an adult, he took off his children's clothes and he put on a, an adult's toga. For our culture, it looks like wearing that black cap and gown, right? It looks like graduation. When somebody graduates, then we, we consider them an adult 
We, we let them make adult decisions, even though we probably shouldn't. But their process was that you changed your garment. You put on, you put on this new toga. The changing of the, the, the toga indicated that a young person now had adult citizenship and responsibilities in the same way the Galatians had to lay aside the old clothes of works and law and put on, be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, put on the robes of Christ. We in the church no longer have the law as a tutor, but we have Christ who lives with us and walks with us. Our citizenship is in heaven, and our sonship is with God, and it's not based on what we can do or what we can earn. Our sonship, our adoption, our favor with God is unmerited, and it is a free gift of grace. And the only way we get these blessings from God is by faith. By faith. I mean, do a study through this book and underline every time it says by faith. Use, use red and green and it'll look like a Christmas tree. Like by faith, he's trying to get this point across. By faith. One of the many reasons gospel people distort the law is we stop preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. Paul Tripp, he's one of my favorite guys. If y'all are on Facebook, I'm always sharing his stuff because he's thoughtful. But he calls this, this idea of being a gospel amnesiac. We think we come to Christ for salvation by faith alone, and then there has to now be something we do to accomplish, to, to finish what God's done in us. Or, or when we failed, now we got to work harder and make God love us again. But when we preach the gospel to ourselves, we're going to be reminded Jesus died because we're failures. He wasn't surprised when we were surprised, okay, we come to faith, and now we're still failures. We're failures. Jesus is perfect. Um, we'll, when we remind ourselves that, that our access to God and being acceptable to him is not based on our obedience, but on Jesus's, that's, that's preaching the gospel to yourself. As, as a people of grace, we understand that God's love is totally unearned. When we quit preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, two things happen. One, we start demanding perfection of other people that we don't demand of ourselves. And then the other thing is that we start using the law and good works as tools to be in control instead of trusting Christ for salvation alone. A misuse of the law like this is really pointing to your faith, and it proves something. It proves that you really don't believe the work of Jesus is sufficient. And that's something you need to work out in your heart. You want to be, I mean, we are just prone to being fixers, right? We're, we're prone to wanting to be in control. And the root of all this is fear. And we need to constantly be, be preaching to our emotions. We, we are constantly having an internal dialogue in our head, right? And if you're not... I would like to be a part of that because me, I constantly have this conversation going on in my head. And one practical thing you can do when you feel overwhelmed is to name the emotion. Um, Chris Voss, he, 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 he's written a book, uh, Never Split the Difference. I've taken a couple of his courses and I've listened to his book a couple of times. He's not a believer by any means. But what he does is he's a hostage negotiator. He's the most successful hostage negotiator in American history. And now he teaches business stuff, whatever. But Chris Voss, 
in hostage negotiation, whenever it seemed like they were about to lose a, lose a hostage and the, 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 the people on the other side of the phone got real worked up, he called it naming the emotion. To, and when you name the emotion, the situation de-escalates. So if you come and you're like mad and yelling and you say, it seems like you're mad. Do you know what people automatically do? I'm not mad. Well, that body language says so. But uh, when we consider preaching the gospel to ourselves, one of the things that we can do to de-escalate ourselves, because I can get real worked up real quick in my mind. Name the emotion. Uh, is, it, is it anxiety? Is it fear? Is it doubt? Is it outraged? Whatever, whatever it is, try to, the Bible tells us to take captive every thought. Try to name that emotion. And then work backwards and preach the gospel to yourself. If, if you find yourself being overwhelmed by fear, preach the gospel that says God is powerful over the situation. Um, being with God, God casts out all fears. True love casts out all fears. And, and the source of love loves me. And he can cast this fear out. I can trust him with this. Uh, if maybe the root of you being overwhelmed is doubt, name it. God, I'm doubting you. How about praying that prayer of the sinner that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I know that I'm saved not based on my strength, but on yours. Give me more faith. We're told that faith is a gift from God. God, give me more faith. Preach the gospel to yourself. Name the emotion. If it's outrage, because somebody's done something to yourself, to you. Preach to yourself. Who should be outraged? God. But God being rich in love and mercy sent his son to die on our behalf. That whoever would put their faith and trust in him would have eternal life. The only one who has the ability to be outraged is God. So when we look at culture, when we look at our friends, when we look at whatever, and we have this overwhelming outrage boiling up, preach the gospel. Who, who has the right to be outraged? God, and I need to go love like this one. Because to be a, cry, to be a Christian, that word means little Christ. We are to go into the world and live like Christ. But I think for a lot of us, we deal with a lot of these things and we never verbalize them. If you would name that emotion and you would work backwards and you would try to preach the gospel to that feeling, I think you would find something really cool happen. So let's look at the last part of this. Verses 28 through, or 27 through 28. Life in Christ. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Putting on Christ is like the changing of the, 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 the toga. It's, it's showing this new status. The word baptism here comes from the word to be immersed. We believe that as Christ was baptized, we too are to be baptized. But I want to be clear that baptism does not save you. That's something that's already happened. 
We've been baptized into Christ, but we're baptized showing the world of what's in us. And let me set the scene for the, we, we all know the Great Commission, right? Jesus comes to the mountain to, to tell his disciples. And it's, it's, it should be reminding you of God going to Mount Sinai and meeting with Moses. And in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he says this. He, it, it starts with all authority has been given to me, saying, I'm God. Again, painting that picture. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Just for clarity, none of these things are suggestions. For the disciple, we should be going, making disciples, baptizing, and teaching. That's not for the preacher. That's for all of us. But for the new convert, you are commanded to be baptized. And we believe that baptism comes after salvation. So some of us here, we were baptized before we believed. I would like to call you to submit to biblical baptism. Now, I get it. I get this actually happened way more than you would expect. Somebody's dad or grandpa baptized them and has since passed away, but they're baptized as like a four-year-old. And it, there's just this super emotional connection to that. I appreciate that. I get it why you would not want to, but the king is calling you. He is. And maybe for some of us here, you know, you got saved at church camp, 15 years has went by, just kind of went to the wayside, and it's something you know you should do. Submit. Obey. Come be baptized. Paul says, <clears throat> as you were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into Christ by his spirit and we believe and he comes to live inside of us and he changes us. The baptism just, that's telling the world that that's what's happened to us. Verse 27, for as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We put on Christ and we identify with him in this physical act of baptism that we've put on Christ. That's what it's doing. And when we were baptized by Christ, we we're given a new identity. And though our earthly status may not change, before the eyes of God it does. There's neither, verse 28, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. Having explained the, the vertical change that's going on, now Paul's showing us the horizontal effects, what's going on in the world of those of us who are in Christ. In Christ, human distinctions lose their importance. Regardless of ethnicity, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. Profession, slave or free, it doesn't matter. Male or, or female, it doesn't matter. Because we all come to Christ the same way. Through faith and repentance. And as a result, all these distinctions are, relate, are erased and we get to live united as one in the body of Christ. He extends grace through the law, through the prophets, through the incarnation and in the redemption, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what this is telling us. That's what this, this, this passage is talking about. So what do, what do we do with all this? We are to live as heirs of grace 
extending love and grace that's been given to us. Verse 29 tells us, we have all had the same promise and inheritance. Verse 29, and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Next week, we're going to see what it means to be heirs according to the promise. We're going to see this adoption. But what do we do with this now? My ask for you this morning is if you don't know Christ, that you would, you would put your faith and trust in Him. But as Brandon comes forward, I want to ask you to contemplate something else. It, maybe you know Christ. Maybe, maybe you've been bad. Maybe you, you're doing all these things. We're going to start something next week called Who's Your One? And this is, this is the ask, that you would be praying this week and right now, who is one person that it would make a major difference in their life to either come to know Christ or come to church? Who's, who's one person? Start praying now for who that person's going to be. And next week, what we're going to do is we're going to commit between now and Easter to either inviting them or praying for them every Sunday and every day until we see them come. Because, my bad. Because what we see is, uh, I thought it was me. We, we want to do everything all at once, and we, ended up be, we end up being, you know, how do we reach the whole world? By one. So if we want to make a real change in China Spring and in the world, how do we affect the world? One person. So if you will, stand with me, and we're going to pray, and Brandon's going to lead us in prayer.